You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here for another conversation and interview. We've got the Reverend uh, Matthew Colvin here. And uh, Dr. Colvin, he uh, does work for the Davenant Institute. And uh, he's a, a scholar in his own right, does a lot of great work. And uh, he's on the show with us, and we're glad to have him here. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Goldberg. Thanks so much, so much for having me on. And um, it was a pleasure having you in my class this past summer. I enjoyed it. You know, the times I was able to, to pop in. I mean, it was, uh, it was a really thorough discussion. I, uh, uh, this is uh, something I enjoy about the Davenant Institute, just the access to these conversations and uh, the small class size, you know. I feel like now I'm marketing for the Davenant Institute, so I better get a royalty uh, thing or something. <laughs> yeah, but, they should uh, give you it, a kickback for the advertisement here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, it was, but it was a fantastic experience. And, uh, you know, getting to know you a little bit, too. I mean, you're a little bit of an international man of mystery. I mean, you're telling me a little bit about you've been a missionary overseas. You've gone to different places. And uh, can you give a little just a, a brief background of the places you've been, the things that you've seen? Sure. Um, I'm a child of classic scholars. And the apple didn't fall too far from the tree in that regard. Uh, my dad got a PhD in Greek from Indiana University, and I followed in his footsteps and did my doctoral studies uh, at Cornell in uh, ancient philosophy via the classics department, which puts me in an odd position because it means that the texts that I focused on are the favorite texts of philosophers, but when I sit in on discussions by philosophers, they're trying to do things with those texts. And often I'm looking at the Greek and saying, you know, you really can't get away with that. Um, the Greek doesn't say as many things as you would like it to say. Um, but uh, my approach to or the way the route I came to New Testament studies is quite different from most people. Um, I think a lot of a lot of scholars start out wanting to be pastors and they go to seminary and they get trained get their MDiv, and Greek is part of that. Right? You have to, to know some of the languages in order to be a responsible exegete and preach. Um, but it's, it's mainly an instrumental good for them. They want to know Greek in order to access um, the scriptures and the original language. They're not casting their net as wide as I had to um, in my, my graduate work. Um, I was was trained first and foremost in classical Greek. And I did not read the New Testament until probably my third, fourth year of graduate school. That's when I cracked my New Testament open, having read a bunch of Plato and Homer and Herodotus and the rest of the classical canon. Um, then I turned my attention to the New Testament. And one of the things I found when I did that was that all the Greek I'd studied had a very limited ability to explain things. And that when I encountered a puzzle, and of course I, was, I had been raised as a Christian, baptized as an infant, raised in a Lutheran church, and um, became a Presbyterian in college. Uh, so I, I've had the biblical text washing over me my whole life from the pulpit and Bible studies and lectionary readings. Um, so I had this familiarity with the text, but often it was a familiarity without comprehension. Um, and when I when I started taking it seriously and trying to understand it well in my 20s, um, I found that I didn't get a lot of light from classical Greek scholarship, um, that, that the things I had learned from my PhD were not opening up the New Testament for me. 
Um, and then when I when I started reading the Jewish background, I discovered that wow, there, there's a lot of things that become clear and make sense, and puzzles get solved, uh, riddles are answered when you start studying the culture, the laws, and the usages and rituals of the Jews in the Second Temple period, because it's their culture that's at work in the pages of the New Testament. Every author of books of the New Testament was Jewish, except maybe Luke, and he's as close as you can get while still having a foreskin. Um, so that that was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, a, a Greek scholar discovers the Bible um, and scholarship on the background of the Bible. Uh, we moved to Cincinnati to teach for me to teach at a classical Christian school there, and we stayed there for about uh, nine years and were active members of a Reformed Episcopal Church, which is a conservative Anglican denomination. So they're, they're good. They're good Episcopal. Good Episcopal, just for all yeah, our listeners. <laughs> we, we always had to say that, right? Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not the Episcopal Church. Yeah, no, yeah. The, re, the Reformed Episcopal Church. Reformed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good, good. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like to say the Reformed Episcopal Church jumped out of the pot in 1873, long before the temperature reached right. you know, the, the level that it alarmed the frogs that were slumbering in it through through women's ordination and all kinds of theological liberalism. And they finally jumped out once a homosexual got ordained as a bishop. Um, no, the, the REC was you know, more than 100 years earlier. Well, you guys were ahead of the curve. Uh -huh. our, our senses of discernment are a little more. That's open. right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so that's, that's where I became Anglican. And I became Anglican holding my nose. Um, I did not like the idea of bishops, episcopacy. Uh, the prayer book seemed wordy and long to me. Like, why do we need this many prayers before we take communion? Um, I grew to love Anglicanism and to respect and love the liturgy and to recognize that it embodies the wisdom of the ages sort of accumulated. Um, and I kind of cringe when someone invents their own liturgy off the top of their head now. Uh, who do you think you are? But um, at the time, I had been studying one. I, I'm fascinated by Christian origins. Um, one of my books is, is on the origin of the Eucharist, um, tracing it back to the Passover and trying to understand the Last Supper um, with the help of Jewish sources. And then uh, the other book that I'm working on right now, I'm trying to get trying to get finished. It's several years overdue. Um, is a book on the origins of ordained office in the church um, and discussion of the apostolate and the episcopacy um, and the pastoral epistles uh, become important evidence for that. So I had already started working on that back in 2002, 2003. And at the time I was Presbyterian and the regnant orthodoxy on church office was the synagogue hypothesis uh, of James Tunstead Burchell, who's uh, a scholar in the Episcopal Church. And I had I pretty much accepted that at the time. I had not delved deeper and hadn't tried investigating the Talmudic and um, you know the Mishnah, other sources about synagogues and how they were run in the Second Temple period. 
um, or later in the rabbinic period. And so I, I simply accepted that, yeah, um, synagogues were ruled by boards of elders, and that's what we ought to be doing. And so uh, this Reformed Episcopal Church that I was in with its bishops, well, they've got a lot right, and they're a good fit for my family, but I'm just going to kind of turn the other way and um, give them a pass when it comes to church government while, while simultaneously thinking that they're not really doing it right. Um, and so that that's where I was uh, as of about 2004, and then came to love Anglicanism and went as missionaries to the Philippines, um, where I was engaged in teaching Greek to evangelical pastors in the Philippines, and Latin to Filipino homeschoolers. Um, and my wife was a midwife at a birth clinic serving the urban, urban poor there. And I got ordained in order to go do that. I became a deacon in the REC, and that involved sort of reevaluating my views of church government, making my peace with episcopacy. Um, and then we came back for health reasons in 2017. Um, I did go to ordained a presbyter or priest, um, and we live on Vancouver Island now. I'm still in the REC, though. So that, that brings it up to the present day. You, you talk about Jewish background. I think that's all the rage today. I think on a popular level, even, that's hit. What do you make of that resurgence? Is it, uh, especially with N.T. Wright, are, are, are some of the, you know, reading everything through the Second Temple lens, is it overstated? Is it understated? Is it underdeveloped? What, what's kind of your opinion on that popular resurgence? There, uh, that's a very good term, popular resurgence. And N.T. Wright is, of course, a great popularizer. Every time he writes one of his big fat books for the scholarly guild, he then turns it into three or four popular level books of about 100 to 200 pages for lay readers. Um, right. It's quite the industry he's got going. And, and of course, he's such a big name now that his editors have no control over him. Um, his books have swelled from... I think the first one was in a 600-page range. Oh, this is the yeah. Christian origin and question of God. And then it's yeah. 800 pages, 900 pages. It's like the Harry Potter books. You know? <laughs> yeah, just <right>. like <laughs> Once you become famous, your, your editors can't control you anymore. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's great that he's done that. And I, I appreciate it. Too, right? I don't agree with him about everything, of course. But um, I think it's good that uh, Christians have started to think more seriously uh, about uh, the the Jewish context of the New Testament. Of course, uh, it hasn't always been that way, especially before World War II, um, New Testament scholarship was dominated by Germany, and there was a considerable anti-Semitic trend um, in New Testament scholarship. You even had uh, certain scholars were called Gary members of the Nazi. I've got these purple books behind me, right? Gerhard Kittel and his... uh, Theological voter book um, that translated as a theological uh, dictionary of the New Testament. He's a card member of the Nazi party. He was put on trial at the Nuremberg trials. Um, wow. You have uh, other scholars arguing that, well, Jesus was actually an Aryan. You know, he, he wasn't, he didn't have a drop. Really? Of, you know, dr- didn't have a drop of Jewish blood in him. That, that's the thesis of Interesting. One, one prominent German German Jesus scholar um, in the 1920s. Um, so there, I I think it's good that we've kind of repented of that, uh, that the New Testament Studies Guild has started to take more seriously 
the New Testament uh, in its Jewish context. Of course, it can be taken too far. Um, I think we see that with and sort of E.P. Sanders uh, rubbed everybody's nose in the Jewish context of Paul, right? Paul and Palestinian Judaism is the title of his book, and um, the new perspective, and then T. Wright ran with that, and um, I think they did a lot of good things. Um, but now we're trying to push it even farther so that we've got the Paul within Judaism school arguing that, no, um, we shouldn't see Paul challenging any of the, the main foundational beliefs of Judaism of his day, but he's thoroughly working within Judaism. Um, I think that is probably a mistake and a swinging of the pendulum too far the other way. So um, I think there are, are serious respects in which Paul and Jesus represent um, an outflanking and a transcending of some of the values of Judaism of, of their day. And the main, mainstream, most popular form of Judaism was, of course, the Pharisees. Um, they don't come off looking too well uh, from Jesus, uh, that he's blackened their name and it's become a slur uh, in our mouths to this day. Um, even though if you were in the Second Temple period and someone asked you, hey, I, I take my religion seriously and I believe the Bible, um, who should I follow? You know, who are the religious conservatives and traditionalists, the, the Orthodox Judaism of the day? Immediately, the answer would come back, you want the Pharisees, obviously. Um, but Phariseeism is not compatible with the New Testament. Um, so the, the, I don't think we can situate Paul simply within Judaism. Um, so what I find fascinating about the class that you were teaching is that you're taking all this uh, Jewish background of the New Testament and you're applying it directly to polity. And that's something that I, I don't know, to my knowledge, that N.T. Wright has really focused on too much. And that's what was fascinating. So I come into your class and I, you know, in my head, there are these categories of Presbyterians are right because presbyters are the equivalent of the Jewish synagogue elders. Or no, Anglicans are right because bishops are the successors to the apostles and there's a laying on of hands succession all the way down. Uh, or no, Baptists are right that uh, shepherd, overseer, uh, bishop, all the Greek terms all mean the same thing. All pastors are elders, all elders are pastors, all bishops are pastors, yada, 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 all that stuff. Or, you know, Peter was the Pope and that's the end of the story. <laughs> I come in your class and I realize everybody's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to some respect, and I'm, I'm being a little hyperbolic, but that's what was fascinating hearing you attach a Jewish understanding. So in what ways does the Jewish understanding, or rather the Jewish background that you've been studying, um, inform our understanding? In what way should it inform our understanding of New Testament polity? Thinking so, about overseers and bishops and deacons and all that stuff. Thanks for that sort of summary of how different denominations kind of bring their own assumptions. And it's, it's not necessarily that they just read it into the text, but often they are coming to the text hoping that it will answer their questions and um, test testing their polity against the text and hoping that it passes, um, that it comes out approved. And what I've come to realize is, you know, the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. Uh, that what's going on in the pages of the New Testament doesn't bear a great deal of similarity to any of the polities that you just mentioned. Um, it can bear superficial, skin-deep resemblance, mainly because of the use of terms 
that continue to be used. Um, for instance, the word episkopos, rendered bishop often. Um, it's very easy. I, I was just actually administering a final exam for um, a, a full credit student in the class that you took with me, um, in which we examined a web page, a sort of popular Catholic apologetics web page from CatholicAnswers.com, um, which was arguing for apostolic succession and trotting out the usual proof texts um, from first, first Clement chapter 44. Um, Hegesippus and Irenaeus and Tertullian. And mostly they, they were saying, well, look, all these church fathers talk about um, a succession of bishops. Therefore, um, the apostles gave authority to bishops and the bishops gave them to other bishops and ta-da, we have proved apostolic succession. But that is to skate over very quickly, and, and it's like a magician doing sleight of hand tricks. He hopes you don't notice what he's doing with his other hand while he's loudly doing prominent gestures with the, other, the first hand. Um, it's skating over the fact that the, the word episcopos in the New Testament doesn't seem to be doing anything like what a diocesan monopiscopos a single bishop over a number of different congregations in an urban center. Um, it, it's not at all the same job description, uh, let alone the bishop being the sole monopolistic source of authority to do the sacraments or to celebrate the liturgy um, or authorizing the preaching by um, inferior grades of clergy. None of that is evident in the New Testament. And in fact, Notoriously, um, in, in Titus 1 um, and in, in Acts 20, the words episcopos and presbyteros, elder, so bishop and elder, are used of the same persons. And so a, is a, appoint elders in every city, um, Paul tells Titus, for a bishop must be blameless. Well, that... that must have a logic to it. It's not. It's not the logic or the lack of you know, sort of non sequitur, lack of logic that one would find in, um, you know, I don't know, appoint high school principals for the president of the United States must be blamed. Well, there's no connection between those jobs. But when you've got that gar explanatory particle, then there needs to be some connection between the office of episcopos and this term elders. Um, so there are problems with reading monopiscopacy and a sort of high doctrine of apostolic succession in the Roman Catholic or Anglo-Catholic sense. Reading that into the pages of the New Testament doesn't work. And the best Anglican scholars have recognized that. So J.B. Lightfoot, the Bishop of Durham, uh, one of the prominent New Testament scholars of the turn of the 20th century, um, late 19th, early 20th century, he he argued that Episcopos and Presbyteros were synonyms and that there's only two offices in the New Testament. There's bishop slash elder and there's deacon. So the Baptists um, are right. So the Baptists well, are that, right. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, um, there are other questions we have to raise, such as <laughs> what's, what's the source of the authority? So... Hmm. Um, 
Let, let me, I mean, let me share a passage with you. Sure. And, you, and your listeners. So this is First Clement, writing in the 90s. So not too long after the last apostles shuffled off this mortal coil. Um, and he's rebuking um, the church he's writing to Corinthians for having deposed their elders, their church officers. And he says in, in 1 Clement 4, 44, chapter 44, verse 3, um, those who have been appointed by them, that is the apostles, um, or in the meantime, by other men of good reputation or other noteworthy men with the entire church approving and who have Santos in a blameless way over the flock of Christ with humility. He goes on and then he finishes the sentence. We do not deem that, it, that they are justly being thrust out of their ministry. So you guys, you Corinthians, should not be deposing your church officers because apostles appointed them and then very inconveniently for an apostolic succession view, he then adds, they were appointed either by the apostles or by other reputable men. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> um, how, can, how can there be uh, bishops appointed by other reputable men if they all have to be derived from the apostles? Um, and that, that term their ministry that they've been thrust out from. That word is leitorgia. Um, and, and he says that one of the reasons why they shouldn't be deprived of their ministry is that they have they have leitorgesantas in a blameless way. They have conducted their ministry in a blameless way. And we hear liturgy and we think, oh, that's all the stuff that goes on at the front of the church. Right? People in robes are chancel prancing and swinging thoroughbulls and ringing bells or whatever they're doing up there, consecrating the Eucharist, saying prayers, leading, leading antiphonal responses, um, doing the liturgy. But of course, that's not actually what the word means in first century Greek. Liturgia has reference rather to the underwriting of other people's ministry. So that when he, when he says, when Clement says that these guys have Leitorge Santos blamelessly, he means that they've provided for other people who are doing the teaching in the church, or prophets who are in your church. Uh, they've taken care of the poor. They've fed the widows and orphans. Um, they've exercised hospitality for traveling missionaries. And all of these are largely financial responsibilities. In other words, they're not liturgy per se. Um, in, in the modern sense of the word. That's a false and misleading etymology. Right? Yeah, it's, it's etymologically derived from leitorgeo and leitorgia, but it's not denoting the same sorts of activities. So that was a major shift for me in thinking about what do church officers do in the New Testament? Um, we kind of look in vain for um, any command that says, when you do the Lord's Supper, make sure that only your ordained officers are the ones who are presiding over it. Um, it may have been, but it doesn't seem to have been a pressing issue uh, 
to ensure an ecclesiastical monopoly of the sacraments or of teaching for that matter. Um, Titus 1 urges that you got to appoint men who are able to refute those who teach falsehoods and, and heresy, but it, it nowhere implies that the bishop needs to be the one who does all the teaching. Um, so that's a major shift. Um, and, and I think here I'm, I'm largely influenced by um, one of the leading scholars of um, the origins of office, uh, Alistair Stewart's 2015 book, uh, The Original Bishops, where he, he urges, in keeping with um, other scholars like Alistair Campbell, that um, the, the office of bishop, first, it wasn't over a diocese. It was a local church office, um, often over a household church, a house church, and that it was primarily um, an office of provision, um, a financial officer, in keeping with the usage of the title episkopos, which was not a term that the church invented. It was a, a title that was used in lots of Greco-Roman associations, dinner societies, veteran societies, um, burial associations, where people pay for each other's funerals, um, and, and banqueting clubs, dining clubs, um, all kinds of associations would have a financial officer in charge, um, supervising the activities of the organization and providing for it. And the term was usually, I mean, among other terms, but the, the, a lot of them were called episcopos. Um, so that, that was a shift for me. Um, away from assuming that, okay, these were Jews, so they must have been doing the Jewish thing, and the Jewish thing was the synagogue, and synagogues must have been ruled by boards of elders. Well, no. Um, we kind of look in vain for any evidence that boards of elders were ever directing synagogues. Um, we do have terms for synagogue officers. Archi synagogos is the head of a synagogue. But it's pretty noteworthy that that's never used for any Christian officer. Um, so it's a different, different organization with different officer titles. Are the Baptists right? Well, I don't know. I don't know enough about Baptist polity. Maybe you can sketch for me. How does one become a Baptist pastor? Where does the authority of a Baptist pastor derive from? Um, is there apostolic succession in Baptist circles? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. all the way back to Spurgeon. It's just a laying down ah. of hands. He, he began it. <laughs> And it's just an unbroken chain. No, I, well, you know, this is something fascinating because it seems like on the one hand you're saying, well, maybe, maybe if, if I have this understood correctly. So if you take a Catholic or an Anglican polity and you have a bishop who says, one, I'm a bishop because you can trace the laying on of hands from me all the way back to an apostle. So that's why I'm a bishop. Uh, and two, my role is I handle the liturgy, meaning the worship practices of a, of a Lord's Day service, uh, the teaching, the Lord's Supper, and uh, I am the one who's being supported by my congregations. Or, or rather, uh, maybe I would say this, the bishop is a guy, I'm over multiple churches, and I'm appointing these priests. And you're saying, actually, the bishop, one, doesn't seem to have been appointed merely by apostles, but also by other notable men. And two, he doesn't seem to be doing much teaching at all. In fact, his main job is he's got the money. He's the one who's making sure other ministries of teaching are happening. So this is kind of a, a flip. And if you think about the standard Baptist church where a pastor and elder are the same thing, 
they're doing the teaching, they're doing the preaching, and they're being supported by the people. But you're saying, well, no, actually, the original bishops were, uh, quote unquote, senior pastors of their church, but they were mainly dealing with financial issues, not really the things that we normally associate with pastors. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. And, and of course, you may remember from a course that the main place we went to investigate this question um, was the epistles of Ignatius, uh, which as Ignatius is very insistent, you know, do nothing without the bishop. Uh, let that be considered a valid Eucharist, which the bishop or one whom he has appointed celebrates. Um, you know, don't separate from your bishop. Uh, if you if you go off and you have meals that are not authorized by the bishop, that's like poison. Uh, you're, you're creating creating schism and divisions in the church, and you're certain people who are hosting these meals apart from the bishop, they're seeking honor for themselves. Um, and and it, it's easy, and of course I could I could cite lots of, especially Roman Catholic sources that would point to Ignatius's letters and they would say, see, you've got to be in union with the bishop. <laughs> Which, you know, by extrapolation also, you've got to be in union with the Holy See, since that's the source of all the bishop's authorities. Um, but, in reality, when we look closely at Ignatius's letters, we see that he's not saying, in fact, he never says, you've got to be in union with the bishop because the apostles appointed them. Probably there were lots of bishops that the apostles didn't appoint. Um, there's no reason to think that every single bishop running around in the Greco-Roman world of the early second century had had hands laid on him by the apostles. Uh, I think that's pretty clearly something that didn't happen if we listen to First Clement 44. Um, so what is Ignatius concerned with? He's not saying uh, only the bishop has the power to confect Christ and make him really present in the Eucharist, uh, or only the bishop can make the sacraments work um, by the, the priest's sacerdotal power invested in him by the apostle. He never makes that kind of an argument. And that's not what Ignatius is saying. His concern, rather, is a sociological one. Um, he wants to make sure that the church doesn't get divided by people who are attempting to gain prestige and influence and a following by providing charity and patronage out of their own wealth um, and that we can already see in the pages of the New Testament that that's a danger. Right? Diotrephes and Thor John um, doesn't receive the brethren. Uh, he loves the preeminence. Um, or you know, even the, the Corinthian church where the rich are getting drunk and, and stuffing themselves while the poor have nothing. Um, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, Paul tells them, um, because you're shaming the poor and humiliating those who have nothing. Um, so... Uh, the, the function of the Episcopos in Ignatius is that he's the official supervisor of the church, and he's administering the funds of the church. And therefore, when you're, you're attending and participating in a Eucharistic meal, which would include charitable provision of food for the poor, it's not just a tiny little um, medicine cup-sized uh, quantity of wine and a, a tiny taste of a styrofoam wafer, 
Um, I think it would have been part of a much larger meal and people would have been taking portions home with them to you know, maybe feed their families as well. Um, so charitable meals were being administered by the episcopos, by the bishop, in the name of the congregation who were providing funds to him to then steward and use um, for the relief of the poor in the church, which is exactly what we see going on um, in the Jerusalem church in, in the book of Acts chapter 6. Um, so that's Ignatius's concern. Let's not have um, wealthy Christians exercising private patronage and seducing a following uh, that goes after them um, so that they then say, oh, I'm of I'm of Jeff Bezos, I'm of Bill Gates, or whoever my rich patron is who's putting on Eucharistic meals that are not authorized by the bishop. Um, that's Ignatius' concern. So he's trying to make sure that other wealthy members of the church aren't drawing people away from the guy who they're like, he's got the means, he's providing these meals to the poor, and he's tested with his character and his doctrine. We don't mm -hmm. want these, we don't want people to gain notoriety who are going to lead people astray because they put on a nice meal for poor people too. We yeah. want to make sure that the right guy is being followed because they understand sociologically people are going to want to follow the guy who's decadent out with the nice Lord's Supper and all these things. That's a, that's a fascinating way of looking at it. I mean, um, well, that kind of leads to the question of, so it, it, again, I think it's, it sounds like you're saying the bishop is not what we think it usually is, at least today. Yeah. Originally, he's kind of the patron. He's supporting ministries in the church and he has kind of an, an organic authority as that. So yeah. how, how are these bishops actually selected? Are some of them appointed by apostles? Some of them are just <laughs> appointed by the people? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question as well. Um, so one of the early church sources we look at is uh, the Didache um, from probably the late first century, maybe also in the 90s, um, which says that you need to respect your bishops and deacons because they, again, that verb, they lay to a goosey for you the ministry of the apostles and teachers. Um, it doesn't say that they are doing the teaching necessarily, but they are making sure that teaching happens in your church because they're sponsoring the ministries of others. Um, so how do you get appointed? That's a great question. Um, and we see one of, the, one of the big points that we argued in our course is that uh, Timothy and Titus, who are sometimes pointed to as uh, the first bishops, are not the first bishops. Um, even though we have um, Eusebius and other early church sources uh, pointing, giving succession, succession lists for Ephesus and Crete, and they include Timothy and Titus in those succession lists as the first bishops of those respective locations, um, that really is later. Um, it's not. It's not a primary source, and it's not should not be accorded um, uh, uh, authority to to trump what the New Testament says in, in Timothy and Titus. And what we find there is that Timothy and Titus are sent on errands throughout the Mediterranean world. Paul is is sending Timothy to Ephesus. He's sending Titus to Crete. Um, but elsewhere, he's calling them back and asking them to bring cloaks and, and parchments and um, other things that he needs, sending them to this church and that. Um, they're not local diocesan bishops. Uh, they are rather assistants of Paul. And that means, uh, as 
I think it's important for us to recognize is a really crucial point that they stand on that side of the divide between the apostles and the church. And we should stress heavily that Paul never talks about himself as an officer of a church. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not answerable to any merely human authority. No church has the authority to depose him or um, tell him what to do. Um, He's answerable to Jesus who has commissioned him as an apostle. And we argued that uh, Timothy and Titus are pretty evidently also exercising that sort of astounding apostolic authority, the the power to just reshape churches or appoint officers unilaterally um, with, with authority derived from Christ, from Paul, um, and devolving upon uh, Titus and Timothy. One of the passages that we urged uh, that as evidence against the idea of apostolic succession is, ironically, Acts 6, which is frequently pointed to as a proof text for apostolic succession. Um, since in Acts 6, um, Acts 6, 6, it says, it lists all these Greek-named people that are going to be appointed as the seven, Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, um, and says, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Well, who prayed and who laid hands on them? Um, And what does it mean to lay hands on someone? Um, there's a one, one of the, the great unsealed manuscripts of the New Testament, Codex Bezai, on Codex D, if you look at your uh, apparatus in Nestrea land or your Greek USB, Greek New Testament, um, or UBS, sorry. <laughs> it's a, not a universal system bus New Testament, no, United Bible Societies. Uh, if you look at your apparatus, you see Codex D, and it changes several readings in Acts 6. It makes clear, it it changes it. They put them before the apostles and they, the apostles, it adds an extra pronoun, a demonstrative, and they, having prayed, laid their hands upon them. It changes, in other words, the subject of having prayed and having laid hands. Well, Codex Bezai is probably... um, dating from a period of church history where there was a great concern to delineate distinctions between the clergy and different ranks of the clergy. Um, It also changes Acts chapter 1 to make it so that Peter um, is the the voice who uh, supervises the selection of Matthias as a replacement for Judas. Um, It it elevates Peter um, and it, it is clearly trying to make make the apostles the agents of the appointment here. But in Acts chapter 6, there are several reasons for thinking that the apostles are not appointing the seven. Um, first, we need to understand the laying on of hands, which was a Jewish ritual used to appoint a representative, um, someone who would do your job. You could assign your job to them. Um, and it was used for all kinds of things, uh, business transactions, conveying bills of divorce, uh, saying prayers on behalf of other people in the synagogue liturgy. All of these were shaliak activities. Um, and so 
whoever lays hands on someone, the person who's, who laid the hands, it's their job that the other person is supposed to do. Well, let's run with that and look at Acts 6. Right off the bat, we've got a problem of widows being neglected in the distribution of food, which is a very Episcopal job. Right? We're going to make sure widows get fed in our congregations. So maybe we're appointing Episcopal, not deacons. But anyway, the 12, that is the apostles, summon everybody and say, they don't say, oh, we've got to give some of our apostolic authority to somebody. That's not what they say. They say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, this is not our job. Our job is to serve the word of God, not to take care of feeding the poor. That, that job in Judaism is the job of the entire community. The whole Jewish nation has the responsibility for the poor in all their towns. So therefore, brethren, you look out from among yourselves, Episkepsisle, which is actually cognate with Episcopos, um, look out from among yourselves, men of good reputation, whom we will appoint, Catastasal men um, over this need. Um, and then, but we, that is the apostles, not everybody else, will devote ourselves or continue steadfast in prayer and the ministry of the word. So it would make no sense for the apostles to lay hands on the seven if the seven are being appointed to do a job that the apostles have explicitly disavowed. And the apostles have said, this is not our job. Therefore, it makes no sense for them to be appointing them. The second reason is the, a grammatical reason. In, in verse 6, whom they set before the apostles and having prayed, laid their hands on them. Um, there's no change of subject. The people who did the setting or standing them before the apostles are the same people who did the praying and did the laying on of hands. Um, which makes sense, because if taking care of the poor is the job of the entire community, then presumably token representatives of the community. I don't think we should envision a gigantic 200-member rugby scrum smothering these poor seven guys by laying everybody's hands on them. But probably token representatives of the entire community are appointing them by laying on hands, and the apostles are overseeing this. In other words... And here we get to our third argument, which is an argument from typology. Um, the apostles are standing in the same position that Eleazar the priest is standing in when Moses appoints Joshua as his successor um, at the end of the book of Numbers. Um, that is to say, Moses stands Joshua before Eleazar, Eleazar is God's representative, not Moses' representative. He's there to oversee this whole thing. And then Moses put some of his authority on Joshua by laying hands on him. So we got three roles. The person doing the ordaining, the person being ordained, and the person overseeing the whole thing. Well, who fills those roles in Acts chapter 6? There's absolute identity of vocabulary. Acts 6, 6 directly echoes that Old Testament ordination of Joshua, and the people doing the appointing are the congregation, the people being appointed are the seven, and the apostles are in the position not of Moses, but of Eleazar, who's overseeing, 
and representing God's authority over this process, which is exactly what we should expect given that apostles represent Jesus. Um, they're not representatives of the congregation. So that all that's to say, in my view, Acts 6 actually severs the link. It distinguishes the authority of the apostles from the authority of church officers. Um, and, and so this apostolic succession idea doesn't even get started. Uh, yes, there is succession. Um, and as First Clement says, uh, the, the apostles knew that there would be strife over the episcopate. Um, so they appointed men, the aforementioned men over this. And in the meantime, they added an extra provision, a rule, that if they should fall asleep, meaning the people that they had appointed, if they die, other approved men should succeed, diadexontai, should succeed to their ministry. Which is to say, the church needs officers, so if your pastor dies, appoint a new one. Okay? So there's been succession in, in that sense. I don't think we have any quarrel with the idea that there's a succession of bishops, bishops and pastors. But that doesn't mean that each new one got his authority from the previous one any more than Joe Biden is wielding authority that he was given from Donald Trump. Right? <laughs> he, su he succeeded him. Yeah, they yeah, occupied yeah. the same office. But there's not a transmission of authority from one president to another. Right? And, and in the same way, I don't think the Bible teaches us, and the church fathers, for that matter, don't really teach either, that each bishop gets his authority from the previous bishop. He succeeds to the same office. So the traditional understanding of Acts 6 is that the apostles are appointing deacons to serve the physical needs of the church. Yeah. And then the corollary is today... Apostles pass down their apostolic authority to bishops, who now bishops appoint deacons to do the community service, care for the poor, all that stuff. And right. you're saying, actually, it's different. There's a unique category. There's apostles, a huge line, and then church officers. That's right. So apostles are not church officers because apostles get their authority directly from Christ. And guys like Timothy and Titus... They're not bishops. They're on the other, they're on the apostle side of the line. In, in other words, apostles get their authority from Christ and they pass a specific apostolic authority to Titus and Timothy. That no longer happens anymore. That's on one side of the thing. You cannot use Titus and Timothy as proto-bishops. And if I could bring another um, piece of evidence to bear and proof of that, uh, if we turn to Acts chapter one and look at the um the filling of Judas's vacant seat, as it were, mm -hmm. because he's apostatized and betrayed Jesus. Right. So that's how he loses his apostleship. Um, when the apostles gather together, the 11 at this point, to fill Judas's seat, they don't, in Acts chapter 1, they don't appoint somebody themselves. Right. Right. They the cast apostles, <laughs> right. It wouldn't make sense for them to do that because they're not appointing a representative of themselves. And what do they do? Well, um, they pray to Jesus, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two, uh, Joseph, Balsabbas, and Matthias, 
Um, show, show which one of these two you have chosen. We're not going to choose. We're casting lots. So let, right, so the, right. Via the lots, you can show us who you've chosen. Um, because they don't have the power to appoint an apostle. Um, and if they were bishops, if they were mm-hmm. bishops, they, they, they would have just appointed a new guy. But they didn't. They had Christ directly appoint one. So they can't be, quote unquote, the original bishops as we understand them, the apostles. That's and so with Act, and so it sounds like you're saying with Acts six, what you have is instead of uh, apostles appointing deacons, what they're really doing is <laughs> apostles are saying community. Your job is to take care of the poor. So you guys pick people, pick men to oversee that effort, and those men are actually called bishops. So from what from what I hear is <laughs> apostles. So so apostles are not bishops. Bishops are not apostles, and yep. deacons are not deacons. But deacons are actually bishops. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, in Acts six, at least, it is significant that they're never actually called deacons, um, although the word diaconia and the verb diaconeo are used as a diaconane in in Acts six two. Um, it's not appropriate, it's not pleasing for us to leave the word of God and serve, that's the verb, diaconane, uh, serve tables. But, um, of course, uh, and then verse 4, we've got the ministry of the word, diaconia, to logu. But neither of these, I don't think, is using the word, they're not using the word diakonos, and I don't think they're using these diakon roots to designate a church so, office title. So in the New Testament church, the elders and the bishops, those are, in the New Testament, they are relatively synonymous. Somewhat. Um, okay. The, the book to read on this is, is Alistair Campbell's The Elders, Seniority in Earliest Christianity. Um, and he argues that uh, there's no such thing as getting appointed an elder normally. Uh, you simply become a respected older member of the community and people start coming and consulting you and asking your advice and respecting your judgment and asking you to make decisions. Um, and, and, and then the title, you might have lots of elders um, in your congregation, um, but the, the office and the function in question is episcopate. And the, the, the uh. title is an episcopos. So, you know, not every elder is a bishop. You get to be a every bishop, right? But, but every, every bishop is an elder. I see. That's okay. correct. So, so you have this category of elders are just the organically. They're just the recognized. You just know these are the old hairs who are the people you go to advice. And of that group of old hair, you know, guys, you choose an official representative called a bishop. Yeah, and okay. that's chosen course, from the congregation. Of course, there's development, and you know, by the mid. Late second century, third century, fourth century, we definitely have elder presbyteros being used as a title for an office. Um, sure, being being used for, but it, but at least in the early church, it wasn't that. No, and then, that's correct. So okay, now uh, maybe switching gears a little bit. So it seems so. Th- there's a bit of a, a shift here now. Now the bishop's role, this overseer, is over a household church, not over a multiple diocese. Timothy Titus are not bishops because they're not located over one group of churches. They're sent everywhere. They're basically like, they're just assistants. As, as, yes. They're like apostolic assistants. So, so we can't use them as a bishop model. The common things we associate with a bishop or a senior pastor, 
we want to use more evangelical terms, is preaching Lord's Supper, right? And, and, and basically overseeing liturgy. Maybe walk me into a first century church. What would, I mean, if you could reconstruct it, what would we see? Would we see lay people preaching? Walk us through, what would, what would you imagine a first century church service to be like if you walked in? Well, I think it's sort of helpful to set the stage by uh, taking one of the earliest, and it's not first century, third century, but um, surviving house churches that we have from Dura Europos, um, and we see that it's divided into a bunch of different rooms. So you come in and there's this sort of foyer where everybody is milling about and going off to other rooms for their They're getting coffee rooms. and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Expressive. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to your question of would there have been lay preaching going on? Um, first, I think that that label, you know, laity and the laymen, that is a bit anachronistic to even apply it to the first century church. Um, I mean, it derives from the Greek laos, just means the people, uh, the people of God. Um, but we, we do know that the Mediterranean world was just absolutely abuzz with Christian travel and itinerant ministers going from church to church, um, bearing letters, sometimes letters of recommendation so that they'd be received by this church or that church, or bringing news from Paul in prison or um, whoever they've been sent by, bringing financial relief. Uh, oh, we hear there's a famine in Judea. Churches in Galatia have su- supported you by sending um, an offering uh, to relieve your hunger. Um, by the hand of Paul. Um, so there would be lots of traveling ministers. And we see this in the Didache too, right? With lots of instructions about how to receive traveling ministers, teachers and prophets that might be coming to your church and how to discern the bad ones, right? If, they say, if he says, give me money, then he's a false prophet um, or a false teacher. Uh, if, he, if he says, I need food, well, that's fine if he's asking for food for the poor and he wants to you know, bestow it on someone who has need. But if he says, I need prime rib for me right now, cook it for me, then he's a false teacher. Um, but missing from any of this in the Didache or, or the other apostolic fathers is a, any sense that um, these guys have a clerical status, uh, that they've got a collar to have them. Um, are wearing robes, and you can tell they're not a layman. He's not a layman, so then he can preach and administer sacraments. That that doesn't seem to be the case. And likewise, when Paul's writing to Titus and says, "I left you behind in Crete, so you should fill up what's lacking and appoint elders in every city, catapolin in every city, or on the city level." Um, first, he doesn't say anything about the responsibilities of bishops, including the Eucharist. Second. Are we really to imagine that the Christians in Crete were not having the Eucharist because they didn't have church officers yet? Right. I mean, it's very unlikely, um, given, especially when we look at the, the book of Acts and we see um, that the church regularly comes together and devote themselves to um, the fellowship uh, 
and the breaking of bread and prayer. This would be the normal week-in, week-out activities of the church, more often than weekly, uh, probably um, several times a week. So um, all that said, no, I don't think that um, there's a clerical monopoly of preaching or a clerical monopoly of the sacraments um, to be seen in the New Testament. It certainly is not underscored. And as, as I've mentioned earlier, um, the passages of Ignatius, where he says, do nothing without the bishop and don't have the Eucharist without the bishop, they're not really about clerical monopoly. They're trying to avoid private patronage um, fracturing the church. Um, so, you know, you, you've come into your early house church and there's a, a visiting teacher and he's got word of how Paul's doing and um, the memoirs of the apostles are being read. Um, and I think there's a Eucharistic meal being celebrated. Who's it being presided over? Probably the Episcopos of that church, um, possibly the householder, um, whoever whoever has the the funds and the uh, the authority to sort of organize this and put on this banquet for the church. Um, I think there's just probably some fluidity uh, in in the first century, uh, but eventually, and I think we see traces of this process. Uh, in the in the pages of the New Testament and the Apostolic Fathers, um, there comes to be some tension between the what I would call the natural or organically arising sources of authority in society, the authority of rich people that they can make things happen because they have money, um, the authority of householders whose real estate the church is meeting in, um, and the authority of um, heads of household or Often in the ancient world, that meant slave owners um, who don't, it's not just the nuclear family. Um, it's not just a husband and wife and their children, but it would involve um, their clients, their their slaves, their former slaves, their freedmen um, are all within the ambit um, of, of the gravitas of the householder, that he influences their lives. And when he says, I've just discovered that Jesus is the Lord of the world, and that he offers immortality to those who worship him, um, and I'm going to devote my whole household to serving him, and, and I'm going to pray to him as, a, as God, um, and all my household's going to do it. Right, I'm going to trigger the Baptist listeners now as I start talking about households. But anyway, um, <laughs> then... <laughs> Yeah, because household baptism is another question. But that that whole the whole social circle of that householder now is is Christian. It's very likely that he would normally provide Eucharistic meals for them. But as we see in the New Testament, there's tension. Uh, it can be easy for the rich or for householders or slave owners to abuse their authority. And the gospel actually does not. And the New Testament letters, uh, uh, for instance, Philemon, pretty clearly do not say, oh, the church meets in your house? You must be in charge of it. That's not the case. Um, there, there might be an Episcopal appointed to oversee the church that's in your house. And yeah, you have a position of respect and you might be considered an elder in the community because um, you're providing for the ministry going on in your, in your, church, in your, your house church. But you might not be the officer in charge of it. Um, and so there's a, a root 
to explain in a natural way the development and the hardening um, and the rigidifying of office um, in the first century. So you're basically saying in the first century, office is very organic. And as the church ages and as generations pass, those organic structures become institutionalized, so to speak, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just that the root is more organic and later on it becomes more solidified. So if you... I want to be careful and not be heard as as sort of repristinating uh, Solms uh, Kirchenrecht theory that says, well, in the early church, everything is done by charismatic ministers. And, right, right, uh, right. Um, and then office develops over time. I don't think that's the case. I think rather what we have is in the earliest churches, um, people are modeling what they're doing on Greco-Roman associations. I think that that's a pretty well-established um, data point at this point. Um, and that I think there would have been frequently house churches that haven't had official leadership appointed. And in such cases, if there's a leadership uh, official vacuum, the, then people who naturally have authority arising from their social position are going to step forward and do what needs to be done. Um, and I think there very likely would have been a high overlap, you know, if we have Venn diagram, household, social authorities, right? fathers, rich people, householders, slave owners, right? That, if you got that circle and then you've got Episcopoi appointed official leaders right, right? With, an, with a title and an office. And there is functions. an institution. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. That's an institution. Yeah. And I, right. I think. That's that, that we don't wait around and, and just right, let right. things sort of Darwinianly develop into right, office. Right, right. I think there is both of those from the get go. It's just that they're not always present in the same location at the same time. I see. And yeah. I think there's a large overlap between them. I think that when when Paul sends Titus to Crete to appoint, to, and that, that's an official verb, right? Katastase, right? Uh, or katistemi, to appoint. And that means put somebody in office. That's not just recognize who seems to be a big man in, in that church. No, it's appoint someone to an office. But when Titus comes to Crete and he starts appointing people, he's likely to appoint mostly people who are already influential and leaders in that community because okay. of their natural organic sources of authority. So uh, you got Titus. He's Paul's assistant. And Paul's like, hey, Titus, go around. And I want you to start appointing elders. And he goes to each city and he goes, okay, who's the group of people I'm going to appoint elders from? Well, who are naturally people who are acting as though they're, who are acting organically as leaders? And then I'm going to give them an office of something like an episcopos, a, a bishop. And so I'm imagining you go into First Baptist at Corinth. Obviously, it's a First Baptist church, right? You go in and what you're going to see is you're going to see, you're going to go into a house and you're going to see the owner of the house. And if it's a guy, it might be he's an elder, right? He's just recognized as one of the elders of this community of house churches, something like that. You go into this house, but you go up to the elder guy and he goes, hey, I own this house, but I'm not in charge of this service. The bishop is. And you point over to this guy who goes, oh, that's the bishop. And he also has a wealthy trading company and he's using that money to put on the service and to feed the poor and to pay for Today's Sunday speaker, who's an itinerant preacher who's going around different house churches, and he's being funded by the bishop, something like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I would add that, yes, 
I think it's likely that many bishops were uh, wealthy. Right. But not necessarily, especially when we look at some right. of the lists of these early bishops. Sometimes we see names like Onesimus. Right? A slave. Sla- sla- slave yeah. names yeah. or former slave names. Um, and so what really matters is that a person is faithful and hospitable and not a lover of money and all these qualifications that we got in the pastoral epistles. And I think um, as, you, as you sketch that sort of picture that, okay, there's a householder and he's got organic authority, but then we've got an episcopus and he's got appointed office authority, yeah. um, the stage is set for there to be conflict. Possible conflict, right. and, we, and that's yeah, exactly yeah. what—that's exactly what I we see, see. Right, um, right, in, right, right. In right. the letters of Ignatius and in Clement, First Clement, and in, in the Didache, uh, and and in Third John, that's exactly what we see. Diotrephes doesn't receive the brethren. Who is he? Is he an Episcopos? Maybe he's a householder, and he's like, no, this is my house. Those guys can pound sand, right? Eat the road. I, I'm not going to welcome them in my house church, and uh, and and. The, the writer, John the Elder, says, well, you should follow this other guy. He's got a good reputation. Um, right. Don't, don't okay. call it maybe, maybe in conclusion, uh, with all these things that you're discovering with the early church and polity and what a bishop did, um, in what ways should that shape the way we view church today or we do church today? I know you're not saying that there's a right way or that we need to go back to the New Testament model because times change, culture's different. But if there were a few things that you would think we can learn something from how bishops operated and how the early church operated today, and we could apply that today, what would those things be? So um, one of the nice consequences of um, what, in my view, is a more correct understanding of church office and especially of the apostolate and the origins and appointment and sources of authority for bishops once we re-understand those things, um, what we discover is that the forms of authority and the, the ways of appointing someone to authority are pretty flexible. And there's not any need, there's no warrant in the New Testament for us to unchurch or regard as not really churches other congregations that have a different form of polity. And congregational government has some good warrant in the Bible. Presbyterian government looks like a workable expedient with some good biblical precedents for it. Episcopal polity has a lot to be said for it um, in the Bible. In other words, when we see that the laying on of hands is a flexible um, ritual of institution or appointment of a representative, um, then we can understand the leadership of these different types of churches um, in a way that respects um, their authority. And so in, in my denomination, bishops appoint priests and they lay hands on them. So the, the priest is bearing the bishop's authority. In a congregational church, and probably um, the elders of the congregation come together and lay hands on the person that they're appointing as their pastor. And we can see that as a congregational bestowal of authority from the people to the pastor. Um, and that's exactly what I said is happening in Acts 6. Um, and in Presbyterianism, the, the pastor gets ordained by 
the assembled elders of the Presbyterium bears their authority. So we can recognize some flexibility and we don't need to be um, stingy and anti-ecumenical about these things. Um, and, and at the same time, it undercuts sort of selfish chauvinism that you know, my church has bishops and they're real church government and you're just LARPing or play acting with your um, you know, Presbyterianism or whatever else you've got. Um, that sort of attitude gets seriously undercut when we realize that it's a different world in the New Testament. Um, and then uh, the other big takeaway, I think, uh, that we should see here is the overwhelming concern for the provision for the poor that the bishops are charged with, and that the bishop as a steward and a financial officer uh, dispensing the church's funds and providing meals that that um, serve the urban poor, um, that's, that's a very different picture than the average North American church. Of course, we're in a very affluent society where the position of the poor in our society is not the same as the position in, um, in ancient Rome or ancient Corinth or ancient, Ante ancient Antioch, um, where there would probably have been a lot, much larger proportion of the congregation was poor. But I do think um, we don't we don't have to be Marxists or um, you know, sort of social gospel advocates to recognize that the church has a duty to take care of the poor, and that that should be something that we make one of the functions of our episcopoi, of our pastors. Uh, they should be seeing to it that the congregation is ministering to the poor. Um, that's a big application of the picture of Episcopal we see in the New Testament. That is so helpful. Um, I, are you, uh, you have a book that you're working on, is that correct? And yeah, uh, the working, working title is Like the Man Himself, um, Apostleship and Episcopacy in the Early Church. Um, a large portion of the book will be devoted to the question of um, women's ordination and um, answering some of the rereading of the New Testament evidence that feminist scholars have attempted. Um, especially sensitive in my denomination because um, the REC is part of the larger Anglican Church in North America and uh, probably a majority of dioceses in the ACNA do ordain women, whereas the REC and a few others do not. And so it's a sensitive issue uh, in my church. Um, so I'm hoping to contribute to that debate in a productive way by uh, doing what I think I do best, which is read texts and uh, exegete the Greek and apply philological scholarship to um, settle the question of how the text ought to be read, and then we can make application. Um, so I'm hoping to finish that this year, but um, we'll see how it goes. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the insights, Dr. Colvin. Appreciate it so much. And if you want to see uh, more of uh, Dr. Colvin's work, I mean, you can check out the Davenant Institute. He's there. If you do another class, make sure you sign up for it. And uh, I guess we'll look out for your book in the coming years, huh? Yeah, there will also, I'll also be doing a lecture on some of these things as well. Um, okay. So, uh, Davenant, Davenant Hall puts on its um, faculty lecture series, and I think it's uh, September 13th is uh, okay. when I'll be on. So Fantastic. Check, check for that. Thank you very awesome. much for having me on. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, if you guys are listening, we actually have a large section of this 
where uh, Dr. Colvin talks about uh, women's ordination, arguments for and against, things like that. And uh, it was such a large portion, we're actually going to make it a separate episode. So you can check that out after this one. We'll release that later. But uh, Dr. Colvin, thanks for, thanks for being on with us.